0: Funding for this podcast comes from MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, accelerating the pace of engineering and science. Learn more at mathworks.com. From
1: NPR and WBUR Boston, I'm Anthony Brooks, and this is On Point. One week after her death at the age of 87, Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg is being honored in Washington, D.C. Ginsburg made history as a liberal icon, and she's making history even now as the first woman to lie in state at the U.S. Capitol. Earlier this week, Rabbi Lauren Holtzblatt remembered the late justice as a fearless warrior for the rule of law.
0: This was Justice Ginsburg's life's work, to insist that the Constitution deliver on its promise. That we, the people, would include all the people.
1: The political consequences of Justice Ginsburg's passing are taking shape quickly. Senate Republicans apparently have the votes to confirm a successor and cement the high court's conservative majority for decades to come. It would be a major victory for President Trump, even as he once again refused to commit to a peaceful transfer of power should he lose in November?
2: Get rid of the ballots, and you'll have a very We'll trans- have a very peaceful. There won't be a transfer, frankly. There'll be a continuation.
1: And another round of protests, some of them violent, erupt after a grand jury in Kentucky declined to indict police officers for the killing of Breonna Taylor. Here's the state attorney general, Daniel Cameron, announcing
3: the decision. Sometimes uh, the law, the criminal law, is not adequate uh, to respond to a tragedy.
1: It was a week that saw an historic passing political tumult and continued alarm about racial justice. To talk about it all, Kimberly Atkins, senior opinion writer for the Boston Globe is with us. Kimberly, it's always good to have you. Thanks for joining us.
4: Good to talk to you, Anthony.
1: Hello. Hello there. And we're going to start uh, today with the legacy of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And to help us do that, David Savage, who covers the Supreme Court for the Los Angeles Times um, and has since 1986, is with us. David, welcome back to On Point. It's great to have you. Uh, Hi, Anthony. Hi there. So, David, I'll start with you on this as we look at pictures of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Uh, casket um, lying in state uh, there in Statuary Hall on, on Capitol Hill. You've covered her entire tenure. S- start us off this hour and talk a little a little bit about her influence on the court and her legacy. How are you thinking about her?
5: Well, I think most people wouldn't remember, if you go back to 1993, she came, when she was chosen, when she joined the court, she was the lone Democrat. There were eight Republican appointees, from Nixon to Ford and Ronald Reagan, and so it was not a liberal court. She had been a great women's rights lawyer in the 70s. She was a sort of moderate uh, judge uh, in in Washington in the 80s. She joined the court, and she was going to be a, a liberal voice. A uh, but always throughout her career, I must say, she was essentially in the minority position. Uh, she did not write a lot of um, major. Uh, opinions because, as I said, she was one of the liberal on a court that sort of leaned uh, right. In her later years, she became a very outspoken uh, conservative. So she's somebody who had a lot of influence on the law, I think, almost in a way that Justice Scalia was sort of in this situation. He was frequently angry and upset that the court didn't go as far right as he wanted, but he spoke out a lot, and particularly among conservatives, people, he had an influence. Ruth Ginsburg had a real influence on the law, influence on young lawyers. Uh, she was a you know a symbol of equal rights and civil rights and women's rights, but uh, just simply because of the happenstance of the time she served, she was never in the position to sort of lead the court for in really big ways.
1: Mm. I want to talk a little bit about how she exerted that influence, uh, but Kimberly, same question to you. What what are you thinking about today as we remember Ruth Bader Ginsburg?
4: Yes, I mean David is right in the way that Ruth Bader Ginsburg, for the majority of her tenure uh, on the court, was not uh, in the position because of the makeup to uh, of the court to have the sort of landmark rulings, and so that is one of many reasons why she became essentially uh, the dissenter in chief, right? She often found herself in the minority, uh, but she started after years not delivering any bench dissents. uh, It was actually the first day I covered the court back in 2007. She delivered a bench dissent in uh, a case where the court upheld the federal uh, so-called ban ban on so-called partial birth abortions. And she really condemned the ruling as being, with the law having not changed at all, uh, the law established by Roe v. Wade. And the only thing that had changed was the makeup of the court, which at that point, besides her, was all male. Um, And that led to the Lily Ledbetter dissent about fair pay, which led to Congress to act after she called on them to do so. That became the first law signed into uh Uh, into law by President Obama, she began uh, wearing these collars when she would dissent, particular collars that led retailers to start selling Ginsburg dissent collars that Mm -hmm. led to her getting this moniker as notorious RBG for her outspokenness that came toward the end. You know, that came well, uh, more than a decade into her tenure um, on the U.S. Supreme Court. So she found a way, even though she did not find herself in the majority or writing these big, you know, lasting opinions. Um, In most cases, she found a way to make her voice known, uh, make her voice heard on the court, not only to Congress and her fellow justices, but also to the American public.
1: And Kimberly, I'm really glad you brought up the Lily Ledbetter case, because that's a great example where she was essentially uh, on the losing side of that decision. She wrote the dissent, and in many ways that dissent— uh, spurred, inspired uh, Congress, uh, President Obama uh, to pass a law. Can you can you just tell that story really briefly
4: about uh, about the Lily, yes.
1: Lily Ledbetter case?
4: Well, essentially, the law provided that you had to file a, an aid a pay discrimination case within 180 days of the actual discriminatory act, which is the issuing of a paycheck. Well, of course, when it comes to gender pay discrimination, usually women don't know that they're making less money, that the, that the discrimination is taking place. And when Lily Ledbetter went to sue her employer, she lost because she didn't know and Every time a new paycheck uh, was issued, the the you know she, you you had to the, the clock started within six months of the last discriminatory paycheck. Mm-hmm. So for the the tenure of her time working there, she could not get that money back. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg denounced that and called on Congress to change the law uh, in that fiery bench dissent. And Congress acted and they passed the Lilly, Better, Lilly Ledbetter Fair Pay Act. It didn't benefit Lily Ledbetter, unfortunately, because it came after her case, but it benefited uh, women moving forward, giving them time to be able to discover uh, these pay inequities, which are often hidden. And, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg often talked about her own uh, experience with discrimination. She graduated first in her class from law school and couldn't, couldn't get a job at a big law firm. Um, and so she was well aware of what that felt like and she could speak from that experience let's listen to a little bit
1: of tape Um, justice ginsburg was honored in a short memorial service at the supreme court on wednesday and uh, here's chief justice john roberts the court was her family too this building was her home too
5: of course she will live on in what she did to improve the law and the lives of all of us and yet still ruth is gone and we grieve
1: David Savage, what were the expectations when she was first confirmed with with bipartisan support? And, and and how did she evolve, I guess, on the court is a question I want to ask.
5: Well, as I say, she, she, when she was confirmed, there had been a 26-year period where there are no Democratic um, uh, appointees. Thurgood Marshall was the—1967 was—so there had been this long period of Republican nominees. And so early on, um, and and through much of her tenure— she was. She and the other liberal justices were really fighting a holding action. You know, in other words, Roe versus Wade has been under attack from the right since the 70s and 80s, and um, the she and the other liberal justices, and sometimes allied with Sandra O'Connor or Anthony Kennedy, were trying to maintain a sort of moderate middle position of saying, let's not go back and overturn precedents like Roe versus Wade. So she, unfortunately, never, as I say, had a period where she could be sort of a leader of uh, the court in a new direction, but sort of holding the line on a whole series. Affirmative action is another one that was always under attack, didn't quite get overturned. and, And so for much of her tenure, that's what she was doing, sort of holding the line, holding the middle, for the sort of liberal wing of the court.
1: And, David, will you say more about Roe versus Wade? Because, um, of course, she, she, she was a supporter of abortion rights, but she had reservations about that decision, right?
5: Uh, yes, that, that's another thing that's sort of forgotten. She had a reservation of how the decision was written, and she thought it went very far. She, if you remember, it was written as a, a um, right-to-privacy case if you read the Roe versus Wade opinion, it reads like a doctor's rights opinion more than a women's rights opinion. She thought it should have been grounded as a sex discrimination, equal treatment, that a series of male-dominated legislatures wrote these laws that had a profound and discriminatory effect on women, and she thought it should have been seen all along as a sort of written as a sex discrimination, equal treatment for women. So she had reservations about the opinion but she did not have reservations about the idea that abortion should be the decision of the woman, not the state.
1: Mm. But is it true that if I in in preparing for this segment, I was sort of reading back and, and trying to recall this, but it, she would have preferred that legalization of abortion uh, would have come about through broader dialogue with, with with the states, with state legislatures. Is that sort of a fair? A fair statement. I
5: think that's fair, Anthony. I was a little unclear. I remember those speeches. It's it's often said, you know, that that if we'll take the gay rights issue, that over ten or fifteen years, the court had a number of cases that sort of slowly endorsed the principle that you cannot discriminate against gays and lesbians, as opposed to like one decision at one time that decides it for all time. I think she thought it would have been better. the court in the early 70s started knocking down extreme anti-abortion laws and sort of moving down the road of gradually endorsing the notion that this was a woman's right as opposed to one sweeping decision that tried to decide everything for all time. I think she thought as a lawyer and as a legal scholar that that was not the that was not the most effective right. uh, way to get there.
1: Well David Savage Kimberly, I can stand by. Uh, we're talking about the legacy of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and how her loss is reshaping the Supreme Court a lot more on that after the break and what happens next in Washington after the break I'm Anthony Brooks this is on point.
0: Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Support for On Point comes from BetterHelp. If you had an extra hour in the day, how would you use it? BetterHelp Online Therapy can help you figure out what's most important to you so you can prioritize it. Learn to make time for what makes you happy. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. And switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Visit betterhelp.com onpoint today to get 10% off your first month.
1: This is On Point. I'm Anthony Brooks. We're talking about a pivotal story this week in the news, how Ruth Bader Ginsburg's passing is reshaping the Supreme Court and the political reaction to that. I'm here with Kimberly Atkins, senior opinion writer for The Boston Globe, and David Savage, who covers the Supreme Court at The Los Angeles Times. Now, uh, we understand that before her death, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg told her granddaughter that her dying wish was not to be replaced until the next president was chosen. Um, President Trump uh, and Mitch McConnell, Senate leader, uh, have the votes apparently to install a new justice by Election Day. This has Democrats incensed, uh, given that they were unable to Uh, put Barack Obama's choice of Merrick Garland before the Senate. So here's Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer, who spoke to reporters on Tuesday about Republican plans to confirm a Supreme Court justice before the presidential election.
2: Leader McConnell's actions may now very well destroy the institution of the Senate. If Leader McConnell presses forward, the Republican majority will have stolen two Supreme Court seats Four years apart, using completely contradictory rationales.
1: Kimberly, I'd, I'd like to come to you on this and get your response. Um, are, do the Democrats have any arrows in their quiver uh, left um, to, to, to stop this nomination, or does it, I mean, to stop this confirmation, or does it look like it's absolutely going to go forward?
4: Yeah, they do not. I mean, over the past uh, several n- nominations of Supreme Court justices, uh, essentially all of the levers uh, that would have been used to uh, either try to you can however you want to frame it try to block a nomination or try to seek a s- consensus over a nominee uh, have been broken down over the past decade. It was the removal of the filibuster, uh, as well as actions like that taken by Majority Leader Mitch McConnell here, which, you know, let's let's be clear. Mitch McConnell was changing the rules of the game in order to ensure that the nominee that he wanted would get on the bench and the nominee that he did not want four years ago would not get on the bench. Um, can he do that? Well, yes, because he did. Uh, the justification that Republicans are using, that it's some sort of historic precedent that when the Senate is in control of one party and, and the White House and another. The rules are different. That's nonsense. Um, that's mm-hmm. tying themselves up into logical knots. Uh, it would be more honest just to say, hey, we can because we have the Senate and we can push these. We can push this nomination through and block Merrick Garland four years ago. Um, so the only really the only solution at this point uh, would be in the hands of the voters if the voters choose uh uh, to give the Senate to uh, democratic control, then then things could be different or at least things would be different the other way around. I think there is a concern uh, that, as you said, the sort of the rules are, are sort of uh, broken Senator Schumer saying that um, it's really a blow to the institution of the Senate. Recall Ruth Bader Ginsburg was confirmed by a vote of 96 to three. Hmm. Antonin Scalia was confirmed unanimously ever since the Clarence the Clarence Thomas nomination uh, the Supreme Court justices the confirmation of Supreme Court justices became political it's a fairly recent development usually the thought was presidents had the right to choose who they wanted and unless there was something wrong with them if they were unqualified unless that then then they would be confirmed
1: and in terms uh, David in terms of just how political this ha- has become i i, I was thinking about this, that public polling shows that Americans still have a relatively high regard for the high court. And I'm wondering if this kind of politicization of the whole process of appointing justices and everything that's going on um, leading up to the next confirmation is going to shake that confidence in the court. What's, What's your thought about that?
5: I think it's quite possible, Anthony. I think over the next six weeks, there's a possibility we'll have a situation where the Democrats will win big in the November election. They may well oust Donald Trump. They may well control take control of the Senate. But the Supreme Court for the next generation will be in the hands of conservatives. Um, and then you'd have a six to three conservative court. Still, the oldest member of the court would be uh, Justice Breyer, one of the three liberals. So you'd have a sort of built-in, very strongly conservative court. And then, I guess I don't know how it'll play out, but I think it's quite possible, as you suggested, that if that court then, for example, strikes, uh, that Congress passes climate change laws and a conservative court strikes them down, there's going to be a whole series of progressive bills go through Congress if the Democrats take control. And you could have a Supreme Court, sort of like the 1930s, standing in the way and saying, no, you can't do that. We're going to knock that down. And yes, I do then, then I think there would be a, strong public reaction to say, I no longer, people will no longer support the Supreme Court as, you know, sort of a balanced and legitimate.
1: Mm. Now, um, the President Trump's advisors expect him to select uh, Judge Amy Coney Barrett to replace uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Uh, she's on the U.S. Court of Appeals uh, for the Seventh Circuit. She's a favorite of anti-abortion conservatives, So, David, I mean, that leads to inevitable concerns uh, by many liberals that Roe v. Wade is going to go down in this next court. Is that uh, that a given, or how do you analyze that?
5: It's it's, uh, not quite a given, but close. Uh, I do think this is a court almost set up to uh, sort of strong conservatives People who believe in so called originalism, they've never liked Roe versus Wade, they don't like the result. I, and I also think it could happen relatively soon because there's about a dozen states that have passed essentially bans on abortion, either total bans or bans that take a place over a couple weeks, you know, 12 weeks of a pregnancy. So those Republican states are going to push those cases to the Supreme Court. Those laws will be blocked by lower court judges, but then they'll come up to the Supreme Court. And I think it's quite likely that the court will start upholding some of those laws. And very quickly you then get the question is, should we, six conservative judges, uh, flatly overturn Roe versus Wade as wrongly decided and essentially send the whole issue back to the states.
1: Hmm. Well, David Savage, I know we have to let you go. Thank you so much for joining us today, uh, Supreme Court to reporter you. at the Los Angeles Times. Thank you so much, David. It's really great Thank to have you.
0: Anthony.
1: And let me introduce uh, John Harris. He's a founding editor of Politico, and he joins us now to talk a little bit about the sort of political implications of all this. Kimberly Atkins is still with us. John, good to have you.
3: Yeah, good to be with you.
1: Let me start this question with you. I mean, can you talk a little bit about just how quickly this political battle over the vacancy um, has taken shape um, and how fast the Republicans are moving on this? What's What's your response to that?
3: Well, it's uh, in keeping with the spirit of the age. Uh, when Ruth Bader Ginsburg died, it took, uh, by my count, about 90 minutes for uh, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell to say we're going to push for a vote on President Trump's nominee. Um, uh, yes, yeah, so I, th- I think it's in keeping with the, the kind of hyper-partisan and hyper-accelerated nature of our politics in this age.
1: Yeah. What do you think, Kimberly? You know, and I wanted to actually ask you the same question that I asked David before he left, and that is – just what this does, this hyper-politicization uh, does to public um, confidence in the high court.
4: Well, I think we're already seeing uh, confidence begin to be eroded in the court. As you pointed out, uh, the Supreme Court and the judi- judiciary in general were uh, have always been held in higher regard uh, in uh, by the public, uh, if you look at uh, Gallup and Pew polls, um, than the other two branches of government. But that has started to fall uh, in recent years, and it coincides, as I said, with the fact that Supreme Court confirmations have become so much more contentious and so much more politicized. Um, you know, the the Chief Justice John G. Roberts, and uh, not just is not just the Chief Justice; he's also the Chief Institutionalist of this court and has worked to try to protect the court as an institution against uh, things like this perception that it has uh, political influences to it and that it isn't anything other than trying to uh, interpret the Constitution and federal law. But that uh, has become more difficult. And as the court shifts ideologically uh, farther to the right with this next uh, nominee tomorrow, it will be even more difficult for him uh, to do that because he will no longer sit sort of ideologically at the center of the court.
1: Hmm. I'm wondering, and I'll come back to you, John, on this in terms of the political uh, consequences. We're talking about um, R- R- Roe v. Wade being vulnerable in, in a newly conservative court. Um, of course, the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, is facing a challenge in the court. So these are issues for which it seems to me Republicans could pay a price in in, in November. What are, what are the political? What's the potential for political fallout here? That could hurt Republicans. That could backfire. How how are you thinking about that?
3: Oh, I think historically, you look and see that these issues are have potentially enormous uh, impact. If you were to take the the sort of classic cultural issue uh, that's been shadowing our politics for the last half century, abortion rights. Uh, the activists who are opposed to uh, legal abortion are consumed with this issue. All of the time, uh, and it's the most important thing. The what, what public opinion sh- polls sh- tell us is the majority who are in favor of abortion rights often aren't energized um, uh, by these kind of issues until they perceive an immediate and near term and uh, tangible threat to that. Um, seen that pattern in, in numerous elections, and I think all of those. Uh, Uh, issues you mentioned potentially fall into this category. Uh, You know, the so-called strict constructionalists say, like, well, look, these issues belong to the voters. And if you're going to throw them to the voters, you're going to find that a lot of these issues have progressive majorities behind them. Uh, They're not going to... to, advanced conservative ends. On the meantime, In the meantime, though, there's a lot of people who have rights today who would find those rights jeopardized in uh, under more conservative court rulings.
1: You wrote a piece this week. Um, uh, the headline was McConnell is on the losing side of history and he knows it. Can, can you spin that out a little bit? What were you referring to there?
3: Sure. Uh, it, it's really a continuation of that point I was just making. Uh, the There's always a pendulum in our politics, and in recent years, unmistakably, for ideological reasons and demographic reasons, uh, uh, I think ultimately demography is what's powering this, the pendulum has been shifting um, to the left. And these efforts to uh, uh, install conservative judges really are a form of of decline as politics. Look, we know that uh, strict majority politics does not favor our objectives. So the conservative movement for really the last decade, and I think this is a a supreme example of this, has been using – anti-majoritarian institutions or institutions that are designed to blunt majorities. The Senate is one. The Electoral College is the other. The Supreme Court, of course, is the, uh, uh, the epitome of that. And uh, that's why that's why Mitch McConnell is uh, is so determined on this. You know, I stumbled on a quote the other day. I think it's uh, apropos of this and and the previous segment, which I was listening to. Uh, It's 150 years old. But uh, the quote is, uh, there's a certain satisfaction in coming down to the lowest ground of politics because we can get rid of cant and hypocrisy. That was Ralph Waldo Emerson (laughs) who said that. But I think it really perfectly describes our moment uh um we've basically just uh, we're stripped naked uh as your guest said Mm -hmm. um i think accurately this is all about power and the rationalizations are the 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 merest leaf. and i'd say give donald trump some credit he didn't even uh pretend uh uh to to mouth this nonsense about well there's a different rule when the you know the president's party is in the majority said look uh they couldn't do it before because they didn't have the votes i do now so i'm going to do it um and uh there is a certain satisfaction, at least, just being honest about it. Uh, but I think there's also a real alarm if it's attacking our institutions in a long-term way.
1: And speaking of of real alarm and and what the president is saying about this, I want to play a little bit of tape. So so here he is uh, talking about um, really unfounded conspiracy theories about the legitimacy or the illegitimacy of mail-in ballots, President Trump told reporters that it was key, important, uh, for a new Supreme Court justice to be confirmed quickly in case of a contested election. Here's what he said.
2: I think it's better if you go before the election because I think this this scam that the Democrats are pulling, it's a scam. This scam will be before the United States Supreme Court. And I think having a 4-4 Situation is not a good situation.
1: So, Kimberly, respond to that because, I mean, here's the president essentially saying in the case of a contested election, I need to have my nominee and my majority on the court to to fight for me in a contested election. I mean, that's pretty much what he's
4: saying. Yeah. It is. I mean, it's it's essentially the the president saying out loud that he wants the final uh, the final say in any sort of uh, contested election to be made by a court that includes three justices that he ha- appointed himself so that uh, logically uh, in his in his rationale, they would vote in his favor. I think this is something that we can expect his nominee to be questioned about heavily Um during uh her confirmation hearing. Um and and that does pose a real concern. I mean, that really will put her in the position uh of I say her because the the finalists uh reportedly are all women, um, in, in a position uh to have to say, does she feel beholden to uh, the president and and required to vote in his favor if she is uh, confirmed. So that's not how government is supposed to work. Uh, but it is one of many examples of how we see the president, uh, how he views his office and the government.
1: Kimberly, you you um, made reference uh, not long ago in this in this hour that uh, the situation has not always been so in terms of the the hyper politicization of the of this uh, of this current sort of thinking about the court. And and in recent decades, Americans have grown used to the idea of an all-powerful Supreme Court. We've seen courts decide presidential elections. That happened in 2000. Legalize same-sex marriage, strike down entire laws. But it hasn't always been so. So my question is, must it remain so? Um, I mean, are there, are there ways to sort of get back to the way it was? Well, what's your thinking about that?
4: Well, I mean, th- there are two different things. There's the politicization of the court in terms of contentious uh, Supreme Court nomination fights and and you know uh, nomination battles like that we've seen in history, like with Clarence Thomas or with Brett Kavanaugh um, and, and really sort of how politics played a key role there. and then there's the way the Supreme Court decides cases. And, um, yeah, sometimes it's, it's controversial and sometimes it's groundbreaking, like with that ruling, uh, that legalized same sex marriage in which, uh, Anthony Kennedy really talked about, um, you know, the dignity of, of people and, and, and the need for everybody to be able to, uh, be in a marriage regardless of their sexual orientation. And then you have other cases like the Obamacare case where the, the Chief Justice tried very hard to make it not about politics. Um, and, and so those things shouldn't be uh confused. Uh, but certainly politics does play a role. You know, justices don't live in a vacuum mm. and they are aware of politics when they rule. And so we'll have to see what happens.
1: Kimberly Atkins, David Savage, stand by. We are talking about big stories this week, including the passing of uh, Supreme Court Justice Ruth Ader Ginsburg and the future of the court and the political fallout of all this. Stay with us. We're taking a short break. We'll be right back. I'm Anthony Brooks. This is On Point. This is On Point. I'm Anthony Brooks, and I'm here with uh, Kimberly Atkins, senior opinion writer at the Boston Globe, and John Harris, founding editor at Politico. And we're talking about the passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the future of the high court political fallout from all this, as well as some other big stories uh, this week. But we're spending a lot of time talking about the passing of Ruth uh, Bader uh, Ginsburg. John Harris, I want to come back to you on this political question that we were talking about before the break, and I'm still amazed. Um, I mean, I appreciate what you said about how sort of this has become (laughs) the way politics are conducted now, but I'm still amazed by how quickly Mitch McConnell got so many of his members in the Senate to fall uh, to fall into step on this. I mean, only Susan uh, Collins of Maine and Lisa Murkowski of Alaska suggested that uh, we should wait until after the election for this. Uh, can you explain that, though? Why so many Republicans fell into line, given what you said about McConnell being on the losing side of history?
3: I think there's a difference between the long term and the near term. Long term, I do think that uh, a lot of senators would say, look, this um, uh, erodes confidence in the institution of the Senate and the the Supreme Court. But in the near term, uh, there's no question that it makes uh, red states redder. Uh, And uh, in a a close election for um, Senate control, uh, it it might well be that this gives uh, Republicans an advantage um, Modest advantage only in an electorate this divided, but which could make the difference in key states. I, I really think the calculation is just that naked. Uh, this helps us and um, uh, the leader wants to do it, so we're going to do it. I, too, was surprised that there was not more resistance. I think a lot of people were looking to Mitt Romney to uh, provide some of that, uh, uh, to, to join Collins and Murkowski. He made it pretty clear that they're not interested. And clear quickly
1: let 's talk about mitt Romney Kimberly atkins as a as a fellow uh, Massachusetts uh, <laughs> citizen. Were you surprised by the former governors uh, former governor of Massachusetts now uh, senator of utah's uh, t- to fall into line
4: so quickly on this. No, no, as somebody who covered him since he was in the State House, uh, before he, he ran for president, uh, Mitt Romney has always done what was in Mitt Romney's political interest. And in this case, Mitt Romney wants conservative justices on the court just as much as, uh, the other Republicans in the Senate. I mean, Mitt Romney has voted more than 80% of the time with President Trump's, uh, In line with President Trump, despite the fact that he also voted uh, to impeach him. So despite the fact that Mitt Romney said on the record, that he doesn't believe that President Trump should even be in office, he is still more than willing to uh, back him on things that that he thinks matters, including putting a conservative justice on the court.
1: Interesting. I'd love to ask you, Kimberly, as well, uh, to respond to what John said about who this helps. I mean, to be pretty crass about this, who this helps in this sort of hyper-political moment. Um, John suggested that it might... I mean, I see it as helping Donald Trump leading toward November in the sense that it helps him to change the subject from the pandemic, for example, which most Americans think he has handled very well. On the other hand, when you start talking about overturning um, the Affordable Care Act and taking health care away from lots of Americans and uh, uh, overturning Roe versus Wade, that certainly is a galvanizing set of issues for Democrats on the left.
4: It really is. I mean, I think you're right without question changing the subject to something uh as important as the US Supreme Court absolutely will help Donald Trump in these uh, last few weeks uh, leading into the elections. The polls haven't shown a a big change. Um, It it still shows, uh, they still show, largely show Joe Biden in the lead with a small lead in in crucial swing states. But every day that we're not talking about the pandemic is better for the president. On the other hand, for the Senate, I wonder if this is more or less a kamikaze move by Mitch McConnell, who knows that the Senate Senate is in peril in terms of uh, Republican control and wants to, at the very least, uh, potentially as he goes out and his party goes out, uh, in making sure that he leaves his mark on the U.S. Supreme Court the way he's left his mark on the rest of the judiciary, which is uh, much, much more uh, conservative due to his stewardship of those nominations. It certainly doesn't make races like Susan Collins or any of the other embattled uh, Republicans right now. Any easier. We saw records broken last weekend in terms of Republican. uh, I'm sorry, in terms of Democratic fundraising, not just for the presidential race, but for these Senate races. It really mobilized Democrats Mm -hmm. uh, in these Senate races. So it could, in the end, be um, his last, uh, his outgoing salvo, so to speak.
1: I want to ask you both about uh, President Trump's latest comments about a peaceful uh, transfer of power. On Wednesday, a reporter asked the president's, uh, president if he would um, commit to a peaceful transfer of power after the election, should he lose. So here's the exchange between Brian Karam of Playboy magazine and the president.
3: There has been rioting in Louisville. There's been rioting in many cities across this country, red and your so-called red and blue states. Will you commit to making sure that there is a peaceful transfer of power after the election.
2: Well, we're going to have to see what happens. You know that I've been complaining very strongly about the ballots, and the ballots are a disaster. I understand and, that, but and, people are rioting. Do you commit uh, to making know, sure that there's a no, peaceful transfer of power? We want to have get rid of the ballots, and you'll have a very transfer. We'll have a very peaceful. There won't be a transfer, frankly. There'll be a continuation. Uh, the ballots are out of control. You know it. And you know who knows it better than anybody else? The Democrats know it better than anybody else. Go ahead. That's
1: President Trump speaking earlier this week. John Harris, there's President Trump saying get rid of the ballots that he doesn't like and then there'll be a peaceful transfer of power. What what, what did you make of this sort of second, sort of doubling down on this idea?
3: Well, I I think like you, if I'm hearing you correctly, it's breathtaking, and we uh, uh, you know live in this age where you all these things you say. Well, that could never happen. Uh, that's just not done. Well, it could happen, and it is sometimes done. Um, you know, I, I personally happen to think this is bluster, uh, and uh, that it's something he does to. Um, kind of keep the waters riled up because he knows that his politics thrives the more the the waters are riled up. But I I, I don't mean to sound complacent about it. It's uh, it's breathtaking that a president of the United States would uh, undermine confidence in elections uh, and um, uh, would not commit to a peaceful transfer of power, something that's been going on for 240 years. Uh, It's just one of those uh, moments where if you could time travel from a decade ago and say, we'd be here, no one would believe it.
1: Right. Now, Kimberly, uh, Republicans in in the Senate have uh, sort of tried to what not walk those comments back, but to sort of, I guess, assure Americans that, of course, there will be a peaceful transfer of power. But what do you think? I agree with John Harris. It's breathtaking. Is it bluster, though? Is there something more concerning than that?
4: I found them very concerning. Listen, I I think we should by now 4 years in have learned the lesson in uh you know pre- prematurely declaring something that the president says as bluster. I mean, does he sometimes float balloons to try to to get a reaction? Uh yes, but People thought it was bluster when he said he wanted to ban Muslims from entering the country too. Uh, And he spent uh, a good deal of the first part of his term trying to do just that, battling the courts until he was able to install uh, the most constitutional version of that very thing. So I, um, you know, the president often acts on uh, his impulses, on his instincts, and and it usually falls to someone else, whether it's members of the Senate or someone else, to try to stop him. Um, So I take him at his word that he would try to do exactly what he's saying he's going to do.
1: Boy, uh, breathtaking indeed um, and incredibly uh, troubling, uh, I got to say, as we move. Uh, by the way, less than I think uh, less than 40 days to November 3rd and and the election. So a lot of news, a lot of things to watch ahead. I want to move on and leave time to talk about the Breonna Taylor case, which sparked more demonstrations this week. They came after a grand jury did not indict any of the three officers for murder or manslaughter following her killing by police. One officer, Brett Hankinson, was charged with three counts of wanton endangerment. But here's Kentucky Attorney General Daniel Cameron announcing the decision on Wednesday.
3: The decision before my office as the special prosecutor in this case was not to decide if the loss of Ms. Taylor's life was a tragedy. The answer to that question is unequivocally yes. My job as the special prosecutor in this case was to put emotions aside and investigate the facts to determine if criminal violations of state law resulted in the loss of Ms. Taylor's life.
1: And here's Kentucky State Senator Charles Booker addressing the public right after the grand jury's decision.
3: Let's be clear. Justice failed us today. It failed us in a way that has been failing us for generations. A woman, black woman, was killed in her home by the agency paid for to protect and serve her. That's wrong. There is no justifying that.
1: So just to be clear, to bring folks uh, up to date, Breonna Taylor was shot dead by police while she was asleep in her apartment in Louisville. Police had broken in to serve a warrant. Her boyfriend, believing they were being attacked, fired at the police. The police returned fire. And killed uh, Taylor, John Harris. This is another really, really troubling story about uh, racial justice, about uh, black folks dying uh, in police action. What's your What's your take? What's your read on this?
3: Uh, Well, and there was a a very angry reaction, understandably nationwide. It really sent my mind up uh, to. To where to whether this is going to be an ongoing theme in, in 2021, we've got numerous other cases. The most prominent is uh, uh, in Minnesota, of course, where uh, uh, the George Floyd death took place uh, with a Minneapolis police officer's knee on his neck. I was talking recently with Minnesota Governor Tim Walz and he was saying that he is extremely worried about this, that if uh, uh, that case goes to uh, to trial in, uh, I think, the spring of 2021 and uh, if you got a similar mixed verdict or, or a not guilty, uh, he's terribly worried uh, about unrest in his state and, and probably given the prominence of that case around the nation. Um, I um, uh you know, I, to, just to tie the two things together with the Ginsburg case, uh, it, it's like leaders don't uh, understand what a tinderbox this country is uh, and there, like, how much evidence do we need in 2020 of just how potentially combustible this country is. Uh, and our politics doesn't seem to be uh, responding to that. And, of course, mm. the, the justice system is always uh, – you never know in any individual case how it's going to turn out. Uh, but I, I'm very, very worried.
1: Well, David Savage, uh, I'm sorry, John Harris, founding editor of Politico, thank you so much for joining us today. We're very, very grateful.
3: Appreciate it. it. was
1: great having you, John. Thanks very much. Kimberly, in the few minutes that remain, um, John there was talking about this connection between Ruth Bader Ginsburg and what happened in, in Louisville and that decision. I, I'd love to get you to respond to that idea. But first, you've got a good legal mind because you've got legal training. Can you explain, not justify or agree with, but explain that decision in Louisville? Because when you... Try to understand the facts of how this poor woman died it 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 just strains understanding to to to, to, to figure out and accept the idea that no one is di- indicted or, or held accountable for her death
4: yeah, Anthony, as a lawyer and as a black woman, I explain the outcome of this case as an example of how. Uh, The legal system was never meant to protect Black people in the same way, in an equal way. Mm. I mean, so many things went wrong here. The very justification that Attorney General Daniel Cameron gave uh, for the fact that none of the officers, and let's be clear, none of the officers involved in Breonna uh, Taylor's death were charged with anything. There was another officer who shot uh, outside of the apartment and endangered others and is facing reckless endangerment charges for that. The fact that she was uh, – Biana Taylor was sleeping in her home, the fact that this warrant that was being executed was for someone who wasn't even in that home, the fact that uh, the no-knock warrants can exist – I mean, the police deny that it was a no-knock, they said that they announced, but most people didn't hear anything. They were in plain clothes. Her boyfriend fired a gun in his own home because he thought he was uh, it was intruders were coming in, something that the Second Amendment tells us we have the right to do. But in this case, he ended up being uh, killed for it. Uh, So many things about this and that there is no justice that the attorney general basically said, you know, no law provides relief or justice for her in this situation. So as um, upsetting as it is, really, it was a body blow for me and a lot of black Americans this week. It was upsetting and a body blow in part because the injustice was expected. And rather than being concerned about unrest, um, as the governor of Minnesota expressed he is, I would hope that officials would be concerned about injustice and work to fix the laws so that uh, Black people will no longer assume that when they are killed, justice will not be done.
1: Well, Kimberly, what a week it's been. I'm wondering if you can take a stab at sort of tying together these two strains that we've been talking about. I mean the passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg who was, who was being remembered as a sort of tireless warrior for justice and this continuing uh, terrible story that we keep reliving again and again and again uh, in the Breonna Taylor yeah. case. What,
4: what are you thinking about? i mean it's it's difficult. I mean, we're seeing the passing of of uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who was an icon for women's rights. We also had the passing of John Lewis not that long ago uh, who was a champion of equality and racial equality, and we are seeing in real time how there's so much work in this country left to be done in achieving both things and so As a nation mourns these heroes, uh, it needs to turn to uh, the future and and turn to their officials and try to hold them to the same standards of these icons in continuing to do that work. Well, so much work
1: in this country left to be done. And I think um, that's a pretty good um, summary of this week. Kimberly Atkins, senior opinion writer for the Boston Globe. Thank you so much, as always, for being here. We really appreciate it.
4: Always a pleasure to join you, Anthony. Have a great
1: weekend. And listeners, you can continue the conversation. Get the On Point podcast at our website, onpointradio.org. You can also follow us on Twitter. Find us on Facebook at On Point Radio. On Point is produced by a group of very talented people, among them Anna Bauman, Jonathan Chang, Eileen Amata, Martin Kessler, Brittany Knotts, Liam Knox, Stefano Katsonas, Hillary McQuilkin, James Ross, Dori Scheimer, Tim Sko, Grace Tatter, and Sydney Wertheim. Thanks for joining us. I'm Anthony Brooks. This is On Point.